our scripture passage today is from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and um, it's a personal statement uh, from the Apostle Paul. It reminds us of the importance of Paul's calling as one of the primary apostles of Jesus Christ, with full authority to teach, to proclaim the inspired Word of God. Um, and, and this passage also challenges the church in two directions. Um, It inspires us in leadership and in ministry by the godly, zealous example, uh, the example of leadership uh, modeled by the Apostle Paul. And this passage also challenges us, as Paul himself challenges the Corinthians to examine our lives, to repent of those sinful attitudes and practices that still remain. Uh, so that's where we're going. This is a, a, an interesting passage, um, and I invite you to stand as I uh, read uh, for the hearing of the Word of God. So this is Second Corinthians 12, and I'll be reading verses 11 through 21. Paul writes, I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden. For I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and not that you may find me uh, not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're grateful for the great gift of your holy word. And so may it bring light to our eyes and wisdom to our souls. Holy Spirit, may you lead us into all truth. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. You may be seated. So this passage is uh, it's coming towards the end. Uh, there's only one chapter after this, chapter 13. And, um, uh, and in it, Paul is, is beginning, this passage breaks into roughly three parts. And the first part, 
Paul is summarizing his defense, um, uh, his personal defense as a commissioned apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the second um, section, verses 14 through 18, Paul expresses his love for the Corinthians as he explains why he would not accept financial compensation from the Corinthians. And then the third section, verses 19 through 21, warns the Corinthians that they need to be prepared because he's coming. (laughs) He's coming to visit, and so they need to um, uh, be ready. So coming back to verses 11 uh, through 13, just this little first part that serves as a summary, Paul declares that he is in no way inferior to the the so-called, quote-unquote, super apostles. Um, That's spoken with great uh, irony and and probably sarcasm. He declares in verse 11 that he has not been acting like a fool. And what the Apostle Paul means is that he has felt it necessary to engage uh, in a, a certain form of rhetoric in which He's felt it necessary to, in a certain way, um, uh, provide credentials, you know, to defend himself against the charges that have been leveled against him, that have undermined his role as an apostle of Jesus Christ within this church. But he does this in a very limited way, and because he feels this sort of uh, defense is, is a kind of self-promotion. And, but he does it because this seems to be the standards that the Corinthians are using uh, to establish the credibility of these traveling evangelists, these false teachers that have infiltrated their church. The, the false teachers have letters of commendation. And so Paul has established that the church itself, the, the, the presence and the establishment of the, the Corinthian church is his God-given letter of commendation. The false teachers have apparently had visions and revelations from God. Well, Paul explains how he was taken to the third heaven, into the presence of God, where he saw and he heard things that were inexpressible. But Paul found this this kind of uh, uh, self-defense distasteful. He apparently takes to heart the Proverbs, um, Proverbs 27, that declares, Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. This continues to be good counsel to the present. And now Paul reminds them of miraculous works that were performed by God through him. This is verse 12 where he writes, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Here the apostle again is just, he's reminding them of things they already know. But he has to do this so critical, is it to establish his apostolic authority, not just for the Corinthians, really, but for um, all those who will read these words. Paul uses three words um, to describe the deeds that he was able to perform. Signs are miracles that help reinforce or authenticate something that is true. In this case, the works of Paul uh, uh, were, in part at least, performed in order to authenticate Paul as one of those 
primary apostles. You know, you might think of Paul as uh, one of the 12. Um, he, he was an, an apostle, as one untimely born, as he describes himself. But to be one of these apostles is to have the authority to proclaim the word of God and to do so um, uh, in a trustworthy, in an inspired manner. When he's, the apostle speaks of wonders, the wonders of his works point to the awe inspired within the people witnessing or hearing of uh, his miracles. And mighty works points to the supernatural aspect of the deeds that were performed by the apostle. Uh, we don't know what specific works, you know, that the apostles um, uh, perhaps referring to, at least those that were uh, uh, performed in the presence or uh, where the Corinthians served as witnesses. But we do know uh, that the apostle was well known for exercising, casting out demons. He was well known for his ability to heal. He himself had been the recipient of visitations by angels, by Christ himself, uh, this kind of miraculous deliverance from prison. And, and, um, uh, and in fact, he had been stoned, taken outside of a city, stoned by the Jewish people for blasphemy. He was expected to have been killed. And Paul just somehow rises back up enters into the city uh, where he continues his ministry. Paul even uh, is known to have raised people from the dead. He was known for his mighty works. For the church, the office of the apostle, um, you know, I'm thinking of the broad church, the historic Christian church, the people of of God that have arisen from the time of, of the coming of Jesus. For the church, the office of the apostle is a unique but temporary um, office in the history of redemption. The office of the apostle was a gift given, along with the prophets of the Old Testament, to lay the doctrinal foundation for the church. That means that the office of apostle was never expected to continue into perpetuity. Paul makes this point in Ephesians chapter 2, where, and, and the point he's making is how the, that God used the prophets and apostles to lay a foundation. He writes in Ephesians 2, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. He's talking about the church. And he says, that household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, what does he mean when he says that the foundation of the church uh, was laid by the prophets and the apostles? Well, what he's pointing to is that it's the teaching, it's, and, and, and especially the uh, written word of God that flowed through the prophets of the Old Testament and then the apostles of the New Testament. It was already understood that the apostles had the authority to proclaim in an inspired, uh, uh, fully infallible manner the words and teaching of God. And then these words and teaching are written down, and they form our uh, uh, Old and New Testament scriptures. Having laid the doctrinal foundation for the church, 
Paul and the other apostles passed on to their eternal reward, never to be replaced. They faithfully and successfully accomplished uh, the all-important task of writing down uh, the necessary teaching of Jesus, that's the Gospels, the meaning of that teaching, an interpretation of that teaching, which we find in the epistles, the letters of the New Testament, And then they are given a a revelation of things to come, most notably these promises and a vision uh, that we see in a place like Revelation. What we have in the Old and New Testament is the fully sufficient uh, uh, teaching of God, giving us everything we know uh, that we need to know in order to be a faithful follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, of course, the the Bible doesn't teach us everything we need to know about life. It's not meant to tell us everything we need to know about, you know, taking care of a household or or running finances or taking care of your car or or, or these sorts of things. But it does give us, uh, the Westminster Confession uses the language of it is sufficient for everything, uh, for the believer, in terms of uh, faith and life. Faith and life. Meaning it it provides us with sufficient um, uh, knowledge and encouragement to be a faithful follower of Jesus in whatever age, whatever generation, whatever culture in which we find ourselves. So the significance, so significant was the role of the apostle. Paul has to defend his apostolic calling because through it, the biblical and theological foundation of the church was being laid. And tradition has it that all of the apostles, except for John, were martyred because of their uncompromising faith in Jesus. You know, and just raises the question, given the gift, the gift of the apostle, the office of apostle, though temporary, was a massive gift of the Lord Jesus for the church. And when we consider the sacrifice that the apostles made, and it wasn't just the apostles, but, but um, the only uh, 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 one of the 12, including Paul, um, that we know lived a full life is the apostle John, who died of natural causes. All the others apparently um, uh, were uh, martyred in some, uh, some way. And just thinking about the sacrifice that they made in order to bring to us the word of God uh, in all its purity and power, how should we show our appreciation? <laughs> you know, it just makes me sorry. You know, we, so many of us have the gift of foundation of the prophets and the apostles, and it's sitting on our shelves, collecting dust. And one of the ways we can just simply show appreciation for their contribution and the gift of the Lord Christ through them is by taking the word of God to heart, reading it, studying it, digesting it on a daily basis. Again, the implications of the office of the apostle are massive. Paul understood this, and this is why he acts in his terms like a fool, if necessary, to defend this apostolic calling. As we move into the second section, another complaint that the Corinthians had with Paul was that he was refusing to receive compensation. This is one of the uh, ways that apparently the the Corinthians were were offended. 
And this was also leading to a charge, uh, um, not merely a criticism, but an allegation of actual um, uh, uh, deceit um, that the apostle and the co-workers were using this as a pretext to swindle the Corinthians. So, um, so they appear offended by Paul's unwillingness to accept payment, uh, payment from them. And, um, and again, so this goes on to, it appears that these charges by some, at least, that the reason they're not taking compensation was so that it would be, you know, easier to collect monies. They were raising funds to support their Jewish Christian brothers and sisters back in Jerusalem and in, in the surrounding area of, of Judah. And the, the, the charge was, is that, you know, you're not really um, giving all the money to these brothers and sisters in uh, Jerusalem, that actually you're, you're going to pocket uh, a good amount of this money for your own purposes. In response to this criticism and charge, Paul says something both positive and then he says something negative, okay? Something positive, something negative. And so just taking the negative piece first, okay? So in verses 16 and following. In verse 16, the apostle Paul, um, he writes this. He says, but granting that I myself did not burden you, that is, when he says burden you, that means he didn't receive or accept financial compensation from them. He says, and then he's quoting some charge, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. That apparently is this charge of raising funds, you know, meant, you know, uh, for the Jerusalem Christians, but in fact, they were pocketing at least some of, uh, of the funds. And so here's what Paul, how he responds. Verse 17, did I take advantage of you uh, through any of those whom I sent to you? The very first thing he's pointing out is, I was not the one directly to come and announce the collection, nor did I directly collect the monies. This was actually through Titus and at least one additional brother that went with um, Titus to do the collection. And then he continues. Um, He says, I urge, so this is um, uh, verse 18, I urge Titus to go and sent the brother with him. And then he asked these kind of rhetorical questions or these, these questions of, uh, that he's pressing them with. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? So here's what the apostle's doing. He's saying, look, you've heard these charges, but think about it. First of all, I wasn't the one who directly announced or collected the funds. But my representatives did it in my spirit. And you remember when they came. You remember um, the, 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 um, uh, the ways in which the collection was done so as to be completely above board. Like what? Well, even in this church, when we count monies, it's never one person. It's always two or three individuals that together collect the money. This certainly would have been the case uh, in in the situation here with the Apostle Paul and and, uh, his co-workers. That money would have been probably sealed in some kind of, of box, probably with a letter announcing the amount. That letter would have been sealed, and then it would have been sent. 
The Corinthians, because of these, um, uh, these precautionary uh, methods in place, these safeguards, they could have gone to the, the Jerusalem Christians and said, hey, how much did you actually get? And see if the numbers match. And this is what the Apostle Paul's saying. Look, remember how it was collected. It was completely above board. You yourselves are witnesses to this. That's what the Apostle's saying through these questions. So um, that's his negative kind of defense. But positively, he comes back to this question of compensation. And what he's explaining to them is, in fact, his refusal to take compensation um, was meant to be an act of love. It was meant to communicate the kind of special relationship that the apostle felt himself to have with this particular church. So this goes back um, to verse 14. About halfway through, he says, And I will not be a burden. And here's his reasoning. For I seek not what is yours, but you. Okay, I'm not interested. He wants them to know that he's not in it for the money. That's partly what he wants these Corinthians to understand. And, And then he goes on to talk, he uses this analogy. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Here's what the apostle's saying. He uses the analogy that in general, you know, there are cases where this isn't um, uh, permissible, but in general, you know, the expectation is that, that parents save up for their, their children. They, they can, you know, hopefully pass on some funds that support the children. And, 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 and even in his day, you know, the goal was for parents not to be completely reliant on their children for their, um, for, for the, their being taken care of and their needs and so forth. And, and of course, there are all kinds of exceptions to this. But but he uses that analogy because Paul had a special relationship with this church. This wasn't just any church. This was a church that he himself was the, uh, he was the founder. He planted this church. He was directly the one who proclaimed the word of God that brought many of these individuals into the kingdom, which meant for him, he, he felt himself to be a spiritual father to this group of people, to this church. He has a unique relationship with them. And one of the reasons what he's saying is, I'm not going to take money from you because I want you to know that my relationship with you, in some ways, unlike some of the other churches, is special because of the way you were started, because of the way that God specially used me in your life. And so, in fact, understand that my refusal to accept um, uh, compensation, it's not meant to be an affront, but it's an expression of how I feel about you. And so he says, and if I love you more because of this special relationship, should you fault me? Should you love me less? That's the question he asked them. And it is a reminder to us, you know, what Paul's showing us is, is that ministry for him, it wasn't just a job. It wasn't just the way to pay the bills. It wasn't a way to, you know, um, uh, to financially profit. For him, ministry was personal. And, and it's a good challenge for us to, to see how Paul was invested uh, in, in the lives. He wasn't interested in their money. He was interested in them. He's interested in how they are doing. This wasn't about his own uh, benefit to himself. 
although he benefits in other ways. Um, and this was an expression, again, of his love. With that positive statement of love expressed by the apostle, he now reminds them of his upcoming visit. And he explains why he is anxious about this return visit. In verse 20, Paul explains um, this particular concern. He's worried that when he arrives in Corinth, he is going to experience a church racked with strife and discord. And the result of this will be that for Paul, this will um, have the consequence of his being personally humbled, humbled by the immaturity, the lack of fruitfulness, the strife exhibited by his spiritual children. (laughs) So this is what he says in verse 20. Here he writes this, For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling. And then he, he lists these vices, quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and discord. Paul's going to address two concerns that he has about his upcoming visit. This first one has to do with the relationships within the church, relationships within um, the church. This list of vices all point to a church experiencing relational strife. And this first vice, um, the quarreling that is mentioned here, it appears to be the, the, the key, both this one and the last one. It begins with quarreling, it ends with discord. These seem to be the bookends um, that, that see to be the, the critical issue that he's worried, that he's concerned about. Paul had already identified this as a problem within the Corinthian church in his first letter. And there Paul explains in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians that this quarreling taking place was the result of factions, and a party spirit that had invaded the church. Some were saying, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, that is Peter. Or some were saying, I, you know, the really spiritual group, I follow Christ. And so Paul offers a rebuke by asking this question, a simple question, is Christ divided? Those of you who follow Peter and those who follow me, you know, I'm flattered, but um, those of you who follow Apollos or especially those who follow Jesus, all of this, you know, in itself, you think, well, I appreciate the teachings of a particular leader or teacher. There's no problem there, except here it was creating factions. And the reason for these factions um, that were, are, are, are these vices that are then listed in 2 Corinthians. These are vices that show that the problems are rooted in the heart. These vices include jealousy, anger, hostility, slander. Okay, so um, jealousy, just you know, this this envy of of what others are doing or what they have. Anger, sometimes it's not always expressed in terms of yelling, but it's just this 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 current that's running underneath it, and, it, and, it, and it sh- this anger flows through the patterns of thinking in, that a person has, uh, patterns that are always kind of recounting what someone has done to you. 
hostility. Well, this is the result of, of anger. It creates um, uh, these walls in your relationships. It cuts people off. Slander, well, this contributes to division. Slander um, are these insults or evil reports that are spoken against to others. Slander is normally something that is passed on that lowers your view of somebody, and it's not true. Okay? That's, slander is kind of uh, contrasted with gossip. Slander is usually something that's not true. Gossip is often true, but, it's, but in the terms of gossip, it also lowers your view of somebody. It's an evil report about someone. Slander is often made publicly. So we have these slander laws when someone is publicly lied about, publicly uh, maligned, and it's false. Gossip, the term here for gossip is literally the term for whisperings. And that tells us something about gossip. Gossip is something where, you know, you kind of look to one side, you look to the other before you say, you know, and, and it even, you know, sometimes preface it something like, I, I shouldn't say this to you, <laughs> but then you do. Okay, that's gossip. And gossip is often, it's, it's not, the problem isn't that it's false, it usually is true, but it's whisper. And what does that whispering do? It creates division. That's what he's, he's talking about here. And this is all very damaging. These kinds of vices flow out of what Paul terms as conceit. Conceit is that proud heart. And all of these sinful vices rooted in the heart, they result in his last vice is just simply discord. You know, and we look at the Corinthian church and we thought, man, that church had a lot of problems. But it strikes me that this is something that, that churches today are struggling with. As we, you know, develop these factions, you know, whether it's political factions, whether it has to do with uh, the pandemic, COVID, be vaccinated, don't be vaccinated, um, and, and all of these things, you know, I follow this person, well, I follow that person. What Paul, you know, if Paul were standing here, what would he say to ECC? What would he say? He would certainly say, be careful. What matter, is Christ divided? And are you really operating out of a pride within your heart that kind of, it's, it gets kind of um, entrenched in a certain position and you refuse to move. And, and that entrenchment is, and, and you feel it, it's causing a certain hostility. It's causing a certain separation, a, a, a certain, you know, wall to be um, built between you and someone else. If you feel that, then hear this warning from Paul, that this is something to take to the Lord Christ. And to ask him to, um, to, to reveal this within you. Where's this coming from? Is there something here that needs to be confessed and, and, and needs to be like, okay, yeah, I've, I'm proud. I, need to, I just need to confess that and allow the forgiveness of Christ to once again wash me clean. And this brings humility. It's a good thing. In verse 21, Paul addresses another area of concern. This is the purity of the church at Corinth. The city of Corinth was a city known for its rampant sexual immorality. It was, and, and the church at Corinth was not immune from the temptations of the surrounding culture. And Paul had earlier addressed the need to bring church discipline against someone guilty of gross sexual immorality. And so for this reason, Paul, in verse 21, writes, 
I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you. That is, he's going to be humbled by the behavior, the attitudes, the, you know, what, and in this case, the, the impurity that he, he witnesses on his return of his spiritual children, you see. This, you know, Paul said, this is going to be humbling to me. And more than humbling is going to also mean that I have to address this. And the way he's going to address this, he's told us already previously in 2 Corinthians, he's going to address this with discipline um, of those individuals who are um, uh, both guilty and unrepentant. He continues in verse 21. He says um, uh, that my God may humble me before you and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of, and then he lists these, these terms, of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. These three terms. Impurity is a, a general term for just moral corruption. And usually the context tells us what direction of moral corruption he has in mind. In this case, it appears to be um, uh, concerns especially about sexual uh, impurity. That's what he has in mind. So he continues to specify when he uses the term sexual immorality. This translates the Greek word porneia, uh, which is where our, our term pornography originates. In the case of the Greek word porneia, it can refer to any sexual activity outside the bounds of marriage. The standard for sexual expression in the New Testament is a marriage between a man and a woman. Any sexual activity outside of that covenant relationship is a violation of the morality taught by the New Testament, taught by Christ, and this certainly includes things like the viewing of pornography, fornication, adultery, and homosexual activity. And for this reason, Paul uses these two terms together in Ephesians 5.3, where he writes, but sexual immorality and all impurity, those are the first two terms he uses in 2 Corinthians, or covetousness. In Ephesians, he's also dealing with issues of greed, must not even be named among you. These things, there should be no taint of this among um, uh, among you, as is proper among saints. Paul says this kind of orientation, this, this kind of, uh, of behavior is just beneath the people of God. And again, a lot of times we hear this and we think, oh, you know, this is like where the Bible's all puritanical and, you know, bring out the Ten Commandments and it's all about thou shalt not. You know, it's all about taking away my freedom and, and my enjoyment and my happiness. No, it's actually just the reverse. It's actually completely the reverse. It's that God knows what is needful for human flourishing. He knows that we need to demonstrate and pursue purity. When we're engaged in these kinds of, uh, 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 of sexual immoral behaviors, it takes away our life. It just, it takes away your energy. It takes away, you know, your focus. It means you're not as productive. It means that you're not going to flourish. It means that you're going to be dealing with guilt. You're going to be dealing with repercussions of that behavior that could and, and will 
affect not only your current relationships, but your future relationships as well. When the Bible gives these prohibitions, they come from a God who loves you, who has designed you, who who understands the way in which we need to live in order to experience the true fruit of the Spirit, the things that we really want, love and joy and peace and patience and so forth. The third word he uses is the term sensuality. It can also be translated by the term licentiousness. Now, it strikes me that we live in a culture that never uses these terms. You know, it never uses things like carousing. Do you know what carousing is? You know, do you know? And it's interesting. What is licentiousness? Even today, people just, they don't know what fornication is. Usually it's defined as sexual activity prior to marriage. And I wonder, why is it that we don't even know the meaning of these words? It's because our culture is so flipped upside down when it comes to these uh, vices. Well, what is sensuality? Well, one uh, Greek uh, dictionary defines it as a lack of self-constraint, which involves one in conduct that violates what is socially acceptable. Okay, that just means this is kind of wild and loose pursuit of your fleshly lust. That's what sensuality is. Wild and loose living. It's a lack of self-control when it comes to um, uh, uh, self-restraint. Uh, uh, and so sensuality can be in the direction, not just in terms of, of you know, uh, sexual lust, but it can also be in the direction of drunkenness. That's another form of just giving into the desires of the flesh in an uncontrolled manner where we lack self-constraint. Carousing is the idea of just being involved in drunkenness. Carousing is, you know, you're, you're just, you're, you're going to these wild parties where all constraints are, are removed. That's what, that's what carousing is. And so the scriptures say that these are beneath the people, the noble people of God. Sexual immorality had earlier penetrated the church, and Paul's issuing a warning that if the church will not rid themselves of this kind of behavior through confession and repentance, and if necessary, church discipline against those who refuse to repent, he's telling them that when he arrives, he will mourn. And he will be humbled, but also, as he has stated earlier, he will use his apostolic authority wherever necessary to clean house. Now, we may not be expecting the Apostle Paul (laughs) to visit anytime soon. We may not have the Apostle Peter or James or any of the apostles, but we are told At some unknown date and hour, we will be visited by the Lord Jesus himself. And that may be when we least expect when he returns at that second coming to restore justice to the planet. Or it may occur when we pass from the scene, and we're not in control of that either, and we must appear before the Lord Jesus Christ. And that same desire that Paul's instilling in this church, we should have, like, are we ready to appear before the Lord Jesus? Have we repented 
of known patterns of thought, patterns within our hearts of idolatry, patterns of behavior that we know are shameful and would bring disgrace to the Lord Jesus. What Paul is saying to the Corinthians, this is your chance to do business with the Lord. This is what the Lord is saying to, to us. Do not let this Lord's day go by without confessing and repenting of these kinds of behaviors. Well, let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for the apostolic word, in this case, that comes through your uh, servant, Paul. And Lord, we pray that we would appreciate the gift of the apostles and the gift of the, of the doctrine and the, the, the biblical foundation that they laid at great personal cost. And Lord, may we be uh, the kind of church that brings honor in the way we handle our relationships with one another and the way we uh, pursue our own personal holiness. May we pursue uh, the kinds of lives that flourish and that bring you honor. And so we just ask it in the name of our Savior who died for the forgiveness of sins. In the name of Jesus, amen.